Hi, friends. This is Mercedes from The Noshery. And this is Rebecca from Foodie with Family. And we're doing another. <laughs> it's like I forgot what we're doing. We're doing <laughs> another we're doing episode. podcast. <laughs> another episode of My Plate is Always Full. And today we are kind of breaking down our day job. That's right. We are talking about how to write a recipe. We're both full time bloggers. We've both written cookbooks. Yep. Um, it's uh, kind of our thing. It's, it's what we thing. do. Yeah. Right. This is what definitely our thing. I would say so. So we're going to go through uh, the process of making and creating a new recipe, maybe some tips to help you take an existing recipe to tweak it and make it your own, and uh, just kind of share our love for recipe writing. Yeah, it's it's really kind of like a puzzle, right? You put all the pieces together and you end up with a puzzle you can eat. <laughs> established a little bit of a pattern here. Yes. I tend to geek out on some of these subjects and I, I share a little is... Okay, I do. Okay. So I share the history or some weird facts. You're our about resident factodian. <laughs> I don't like that. Could could we just say queen geek? Can I be queen? Sure, geek? you can be queen geek. All hail the queen, right? Yeah. Long live the queen. Well today All right, we're Marie gonna Antoinette. <laughs> Speaking of Marie Antoinette, no. Um, today we're gonna. I'm gonna toss the duties of oh. geeking out on this to you because you went to culinary school, and I'm pretty sure you had to study the history of recipe writing. Correct. We, well, we had to do a quick little like cover of you know who the father of recipe standardization was. Okay, so this is not a full abdication of my royal duties as Queen Geek, but today. <laughs> I would like you to take I'll, over. I'll take it. Okay, I mean, I'm not going to sure it's going to be the most eloquent explanation, you know, because I'm so good with words, but it'll definitely entertaining and informative. All right, let's do this then. So it all started with a gentleman, a French chef, because everything, you know, when people say I'm classically trained, they're referring to I was taught in the classic French style of cooking. Vive la France. Because when it comes to the culinary world, France is the motherland, so to speak. You know, that's right. Okay, calm down. So... <laughs> Pump your brakes here. Okay. So <laughs> it all started with a gentleman by the name of, and I don't speak French. I speak Spanish. So if it sounds like I'm speaking Spanish, I'm trying to speak French. Um, <laughs> his name was Marie Antoine Creme or Creme or Carême. Carême. See? Yeah. There, there you go. go. You did so well. I, I've done better than in the past. So he started off in in France, and he hit his heyday probably in, it was like the early 1800s, mm -hmm. 1813, I think is when he really like was, I mean, he was cooking before 1813. Right. But in 1813, like he opened his own patisserie, and that's when he really started to get a whole lot of following. Like mm -hmm. he became the first celebrity chef. Awesome. So to speak. He was the creator of Grand Cuisine or High Cuisine, mm -hmm. which is like high art for French cooking because he did these really elaborate pastry centerpieces. Right. So pièce monte. Yes. Mm -hmm. That I believe is the term, which means like <laughs> big giant centerpiece food thing. Right. So it's basically like a sculpture yes. of pastry and sugar and stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So he worked with like sugar, marzipan and everything. He was really sought after by international royalty and like the new nouveau rich, so to uh -huh. speak, of Paris. Legit celebrity chef, dude. You awesome. Know? And he also was kind of the first start of the standardization of recipes and also the mother sauces, mm -hmm. which I'll get into a little bit later. Right. But it's there was these five sauces. His concept was like all sauces come from these five sauces. Right. And he also came up with the fancy chef hat with all the little pleats and stuff in it. That's oh, really I do tall. love a toque. Yeah. 
<laughs> so we can also credit him for the fancy chef hat. And he was really pivotal in coming up with the idea of course service. Okay. So back in the day when you came into a place to eat, they would just bring you whatever they had. So it was a giant family meal, yeah. basically. So mm-hmm. they would just like put everything on the table. This is what we're having. Pay whatever, however, francs or whatever it is that you're paying. Mm-hmm. And... This is what you're eating. Well, he came up with the ideas like, let's serve in the order of the menu. Okay. Which I think eventually became, I don't know if he necessarily designated the courses per se. Right. So he, he wasn't, you know, first you have an appetizer, then yeah, you have an he didn't food. He didn't get into that detail of mm-hmm. it, but he would write a menu and then it would be served in the order of the menu. So I personally would love to thank Monsieur Karam right uh-huh. now because I love having one dish at a time brought to my table. As opposed to like everything just dumped at your table. Right, exactly. Because I get overwhelmed with that and it drives me a little nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean? I and do. then when I say he did these elaborate centerpieces of pastry, yeah. I'm talking like, you know, basically that periods of like cake these cake wars on facebook right not so facebook, several on, feet high yeah mm-hmm. on what is this network called food network so they would do these giant cakes with all this elaborate so whatever 18 you know teens version of that was was what he was doing i would love to see that i think kind of- i mean i can only imagine that it had to be super impressive it had to be spectacular but i still wonder to myself as i do when i look at these giant cakes and Mm -hmm. everything like but does it taste good you know right like is it all how it looks versus how it tastes okay so knowing french food as i do now and admittedly i did not exist in 1813 wait how old are you (laughs) i am 200 i'm 214 you're basically a vampire right you know (laughs) but Admitting that I did not exist then, so I don't actually have a contemporary frame of reference. In modern French cuisine, it's all about the taste. Yeah. Yes, you've got the visual. Like, I'm not and that's questioning. Important. I mean, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Kudos to him, right, for being so inventive and right and you know, everything like that. But I just. I do always kind of think about that. Like when I, stuff gets that I do elaborate, get that. is it still going to taste? Is it still good? good? And and I get that because, you know, we've both done catering. Yeah. And, and when if you, you scale do, up. Exactly. You start to lose some of the flavor on it. It's really right. hard to do high volume. Because you're concerned as much about being able to hold the food and serve it at the right time as you are about, I mean, you have to balance preparing for a giant number of people with yeah. Getting the food out of the right so, time. I'm sure his stuff was fabulous and super tasty. In my heart, I'm going to say that it tasted delicious because I really want it to have tasted delicious. Exactly. So for, I'll, I'll say it probably, high likelihood is that it was beautiful and delicious. Okay, we're going to go with that. Okay. So then after OG, because he was basically the OG of French cooking. Marie-Antoine Carême, OG. I would say OG Carême. Yes. Right? Uh, after him came, uh, Escoffier, which please, is, please say his full name. George. Is it George? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> George Augustine. Auguste. Auguste Escoffier. She was throwing a couple extra letters in on the end of Shut August. Up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he came in and I, I want to say like late 1800s mm-hmm. and he was also a famous French chef, restaurateur, culinary writer. He really upped the game on traditional French cooking. Okay. And he really created like standardized technique on French cooking and service okay. for restaurant dining and everything like that. He also, he was, he's basically one of the creators of haute cuisine. Would we call him a guru, maybe? I would say I would put him in the guru category. Like, okay. I don't see anything wrong with putting him there. And he was the one, you know, inspired by OG Krem. <laughs> so we have OG Karem and Guru Escoffier. <laughs> inspired by him, he in, then came in and standardized the five mother sauces. Okay. Or so 
you know, like codified them, so to speak. So can we talk about what the mother sauces are? Just I can go through that real quick because a lot of people will be pretty familiar with at least three of them. And honestly, the mother sauces are important in some way or another in a lot of recipe development. Exactly. Very much so. They're really important because it is the base of cooking. Okay. Because we call them sauces, but we use them as sauce. We use them for soup. We use them for gravy. Like all kinds of things fall into this these five mother sauces. So what are the five mother sauces? So first we have hollandaise, Mm -hmm. which if you have any soul, you appreciate hollandaise. I know that's a really harsh statement. If you've ever had brunch, you probably have had hollandaise. Like hollandaise is amazing, which is basically, not basically, it is. I don't know why I do that. Like basically. Basically. (laughs) It is eggs, butter, and maybe a little bit of lemon juice. So it's an emulsification and you slowly cook it until it becomes like nice, thick, and creamy. And velvety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has like a ribbon when you pour it, it should have like a ribboning to it. Um, you can use that. Obviously, we use it mostly on eggs benedict, but that technique of a liaison, which is essentially what it is, which mm-hmm. is using butter and eggs to thicken a sauce. Yes. It can then transfer into thickening other sauces. Right. So by making that base hollandaise, you can kind of move it into other sauce. Cause if you've been thinking about, think about it a little bit, a creme anglaise. Right. Is very similar to a hollandaise. Right. Except, you know, you're sweetening it, you're maybe adding vanilla as opposed to adding lemon juice and vinegar. Right. So first mother sauce, hollandaise. Hollandaise. What's our second mother sauce? The second one that a lot of people will be relatively familiar with is the bechamel sauce. So I'm going to go ahead and say that even if they don't know the name, they're familiar with the sauce and making it. Yeah, because that is what bechamel, you use it to make gravies. Mm -hmm. You use it, it's the base of basically any creamy like cream of mushroom soup, right. cream of broccoli, cream, like all of these things. Cheese sauce. Cheese Mornay. sauce. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So of, it is made of... It's a roux and dairy. So the roux is butter and flour. Exactly. And then a dairy added and then, to it. And then, so if you've made any kind of gravy, you have made a bechamel. Or if you make any kind of cream sauce at some point, if you're doing flour, butter, and a dairy, you're making a bechamel. Right. Then from there, we go to a volute, which is chicken stock, again, with a roux. Mm -hmm. And you might do that. That's just another way to like, for example, you could actually kind of use it as a substitute for bechamel. Okay, so a lot of times... When I'm serving a gravy at my table, the table, it's basically a velouté. Yeah. And if you're exactly. So let's say you are cooking up some chicken in a skillet. Yeah. And you have that fat left over from the chicken thighs. Yes. And maybe you add a little bit of flour to it. To the pan. To the pan to kind of thicken it up. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you add some chicken sauce. You have a, you've made a velouté. Right. So when you make these pan sauces like that, you're- A lot of them are velouté. Exactly. So that would fall within the category of a velouté. Contrary to that, if you're doing a brown gravy, which is done with beef stock- Right. Or some kind of meat stock like that. I, I, I mean, traditionally it's beef. You can probably include lamb and veal in there. It's right. when it starts to brown. Yes. Um, and your roux also usually is darker right, on there. It's more of a brick roux than. Yeah, you get like a little bit of a coloring on your mm-hmm. roux. Uh, the espanol is, or I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, you are. Okay. That is the beef and roux sauce. Okay. So that's more like your brown gravy. Exactly. And then finally, everybody knows what tomato sauce is. Sure. That doesn't really require a ton of explanation. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> tomato sauce is sauce of tomatoes <laughs> made with tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> with a flavor of. So, Tomatoes. tomatoes. So those are your five mother sauces. And he, Scoffier, codified those. Like, so Guru Escoffier codified our five, mother sauces. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like, you know, which a lot of people just don't realize it when right. they're just cooking in their home. From there, he, you know, he also made the, it's like the guide, the culinary guide. Yes. Which is a big fat cookbook. It's, it's a basically, book it's, it's like the dictionary of cooking. Of cooking. Mm-hmm. So you have everything there from standardized recipes to how to set a table to how to do coursing depending on, you know, what you're 
wanting to serve. Right. Um, so it really created this standardization of service and recipe writing. And that's, and this is when you're really first starting to see the standardized recipes of like how to make something. Right. So instead of a teacup of this and a saucer full of this, you, you'll get more, you know, volume count as opposed right. to, you know, before it was like scant this and, you know, it was just very kind Warm of oven. Yeah. With no temperature or whatever. It was just kind of amoeba-like. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it just... It oozed. It was just, like, up to interpretation. Like, whatever makes you feel good, this is what you're going to do. You know what I mean? Which, I have to admit, makes me a little crazy to even think about because I I sure love measurements. Well, it's not just that, but especially in cooking, you know, it's very frustrating to think that you're making something and you're expecting one result and you get a completely different result because you don't have enough information to accomplish your goal. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So that's why this was so important. And especially in restaurants, it's very important because people are coming there and paying to eat this food and they're expecting it to be consistent. Right. So if you come and you order the soup, the asparagus soup one week. And then you come next week and asparagus soup is like super watery or too creamy or too thick. Like you you don't want to go back there because right. you don't know what to expect, what right. you're paying for. So part of the comfort of eating is having that predictable Absolutely. result. Absolutely. And for a lot of people, that's very important. Sure. And then finally, one of the big, the biggest things that he contributed besides the standardizing of recipes mm-hmm. is the kitchen brigade. Right. So basically the chain of command in any professional kitchen. kitchen. Exactly. A lot of people now, especially with all of the food celebrity or, you know, chef celebrity Mm -hmm. and watching, there's a lot of movies now about back of the house culture and how a back of the house is run in a restaurant. So you're pretty familiar with having an executive chef having a sous chef, you have someone on the grill station, you have someone on cold food, you have someone making sauces, you have someone doing fish. And in the traditional high haute cuisine restaurant, there are, I don't know, like 12 different positions or something oh, like yeah. that. You know, there. I mean, you've got commis, saucier, yeah, sous, the haute cuisine, like it's just... It, Garde manger. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's crazy. Here in the States or... An, I would say not here in the States, but most general restaurants have a kitchen brigade that's kind of simplified from what Escoffier gave us. So even a fast food joint? Absolutely. Like even McDonald's has a kitchen brigade because it's about creating an assembly line right, for effective, consistent food service. Efficient too. Yes. It's very efficient. Exactly. But in high dining, high cuisine, he really standardized those positions but- and how it is that you move up that ladder. Right. And the hierarchy of it, because it is basically, if you think about it, it's kind of like the military and a, and the back a, a high end kitchen is pretty much run like the military. It is. So it can get pretty intense. And that's how you literally move up the ranks. So I think we have to thank OG Karam and Guru Escoffier <laughs> for our jobs today, because without it, people would still be just dunking a saucer into a bucket of flour and like hoping for the best exactly you know our job as i see it is to take a vision that we have for food and write it in such a way that somebody who we've never met can replicate it in their kitchen yes when we're very conscious about that like how we write our recipes that it's clear i mean we don't always do it because sometimes Sometimes i get comments where you're like what am I supposed to do with this or whatever? Where do I add the salt that you specified? Exactly. Right. But we do our best for, you know, if it be it an experienced or new cook, they can come in and re and recreate our recipes. So let's, let's make this a little bit more than just academic right now. Yeah. Let's, Let's, let's get take some something. artistry into yeah, this. Yeah, let's, let's build a concept for a recipe from each of our perspectives right now. Okay. So, I know we do a lot of things similarly, but we also do some things differently in this process. For myself, when I start to write a recipe, I start with the concept or a category or one particular ingredient. Mm -hmm. So most commonly, if I'm walking through the grocery store and I see something that has a fantastic sale on and it looks good to me, I or made something you've never messed with before. Right, like because I never love to play with new food. Yeah, me too. That will really motivate me to try and do something. Right. So let's say, let's pick something that I know we both like. Let's say we're in the store and we see a really fantastic sale for smoked salmon. Yes. Because love, we both love this. Love smoked salmon. 
Mm-hmm. So we've both grabbed a package of smoked salmon and put it in our cart. My next step is generally in my brain, I start cataloging all of the flavors that I automatically associate with that. And just to like sidetrack you. Yeah. I know, I'm sure you have a copy of the Flavor Bible. I sure do. Okay. If you want to go into, or if you want to learn more about pairing things and experimenting with ingredients, the Flavor Bible is, um, but we'll put a link in the we'll show link notes. To that. Yeah. It has, it's one of the best references to create a new recipe because it's basically a list of ingredients that complement an ingredient. So for example, in this case, you could look up smoked salmon and it'll give you a list beneath that of everything that could possibly complement smoked salmon. And it's a lot of fun because sometimes you'll see something on the list that you wouldn't necessarily think would pair well with it. Right. And then you can kind of build off of that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the tools that I will use when I'm trying to write a recipe, especially if I really want to come up with something unique. Right. Absolutely. Well, we will link to that. Yeah. But let's get back to let's get back to our little exercise here. Yeah. In my mind, when I have smoked salmon, I think of bagels. Yes. Or rye or pumpernickel, mm-hmm. cream cheese, pickled red onions, capers. Um, I think of the New York locks. Yeah. Bagel experience. That's my, those, that's where my brain goes strong first. flavors. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's got a little bite to it. You uh-huh. know, it's gonna, it's gonna talk back to you when you eat it. <laughs> um, not in a bad way. <laughs> it's hey, not you. gonna, it's not repeating on you. It's just talking to you. There's a difference. Okay. So that's what I think of when I think of the flavors that go with smoked salmon. Where does your brain go with it? I tend to lean more towards like lighter flavors, like maybe more delicate, more delicate. That's a Mm -hmm. good word. So I like the idea of maybe the smoked salmon on a piece of toast with some, maybe a little bit of creme fraiche, fresh dill, tomato, onions, some capers in there. Yeah. A lot of freshness happening. We're kind of in the same universe slightly or same planet yeah. maybe different different continents continents yes yeah. <laughs> okay to to expand our analogy there so now we both have our flavor concepts where i tend to go next is i start thinking about the texture and the visual yeah of this recipe because you can't in my world, in a perfect world, you don't have a one note thing texturally. You've got to have yeah, some you don't crunch, want like some mush and mush. No, that'd be mush on, that's mush on, mush on, mush. <laughs> that's that's it's a sad thought to me. It's it's sort of like you know, it's very Dickensian the idea of having gruel. So it's all the same note. It took of, me a minute. I was like, what does that mean? But I got you. Yeah, yeah. all the same note texturally. You know, <laughs> please, sir, may I have some more? No, more gruel? Sure. Here's another bowl of slop, kid. You know, that's in my mind. If you don't have a variety in texture, you're having a bowl of Dickensian gruel. Yes. So we want to avoid that. It was clearly not something that was aspirational, <laughs> even when Dickens wrote that. But for me, I like to have because the smoked salmon's very delicate and yeah. and it so, like, flakes you would, easily. A bagel, like doing something like that on a bagel chip would be a lot of fun. Exactly. And like the raw onion gives it a little bit of crunch. Right. So I actually have a recipe that I, I developed around smoked salmon. Like I said, I know we both like this, mm-hmm. where I took cream cheese and I made miniature cheese balls in a New York bagel style. So I added the smoked salmon to the cream cheese and added some fresh dill and some other herbs and spices. And then I rolled it into tiny little bite-sized cheese balls and rolled those in everything bagel seasoning and served them on bagel crisps with pickled. That sounds delicious, but also sounds like a lot of work. But you got like a little like five-man brigade over there. Did they oh, I do. Yeah. My Comey, my 14-year-old <laughs> Comey was at the counter rolling cheese balls. But um, I served them with pickled red onions and capers on bagel crisps. I love pickled vegetables. I do too. On almost everything. Well, they, okay, this is a texture. Yeah. It's a texture and a flavor and a visual even because pickled vegetables are beautiful. Yeah. Especially like red. Well, because they, the, the pickling amplifies the color. Right. Especially red onions. Those are magenta. They're hot pink and anything you put those on has this bright, beautiful pop of <laughs> hot pink on top of it now because 
if we're being honest, a bowl full of just plain old brown food is not, I mean, it could be delicious, but it doesn't look appealing. Right. So if you can get past the visual on that, you're fine. But I mean, for Pete's sake, just throw a little bit of minced parsley on top or something. Make yeah. It- and you can even make these additions that will add, I mean, Minced parsley is the go-to easiest way to kind of dress something up. Sure. And make it it's make a no feel brainer. fancified or whatever. It's a no-brainer. But you can also do things like adding a little bit of diced red onion, right. maybe a few diced tomatoes or bell pepper. Some thinly sliced jalapeno peppers if yeah. it goes with Anything what you're talking like, about. You know, you might even, a lot of times, what if I'm trying to make it look pretty, I'll think about the ingredients that are already in the dish and I'll use a raw ingredient as a garnish. So right. like, for example, if the dish has red pepper in it, or if it has fresh herbs in it, or anything like that, so instead of using parsley, maybe I'll sprinkle it with the sage that's in the recipe. Right. Or a little sprig of rosemary, if you or something have like that. rosemary in it. Sure. You're, you're building flavor too, then, in addition to giving it a visual pop. Exactly. So we have so far that you start off with your ingredient. Yes. Which, or maybe your course and how you and use that as your jumping point. Right. And then what kind of flavors you would pair with that ingredient. Right. So you brainstorm your flavor pairings. Yeah. And usually you're just by brainstorming your flavor pairings, then you go into what it looks like, the and textures it's going to have. And then essentially you'll be like, well, now that I know kind of what I want to create, how, now, do, I create how do I cook it yes. to accomplish that? Or even maybe it'd be better to say, how do I prepare it? Because yeah. it's not I always mean, going to be a cooking. Too. Sure. You can work it. Because sometimes I'm like, I oh, mean, I really feel like braising something, you know? Those are things that Miss Sadie says. <laughs> Hi, I'd really like to braise something today. It's true. Like sometimes I'm like, and I, it's one of my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite, I mean, besides roasting, my two favorites are roasting and braising. Okay. So I just made fun of you, but it's a, you make a very valid point. If it is cold out, you know you want something warm and comforting, right? Yes. So you would think a stew, which is a braise, honestly. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Braising is when you are applying heat through some steaming and liquid. We're not talking about boiling stuff. That's different. And we're not talking about steamed chicken breast. We're talking about the the protein actually being in the liquid as it cooks. Uh, You'll see this a lot when we're talking about a good comparison to use is, is any kind of stew. And so let's say we've kind of developed something and we want a comforting dish. We want mm-hmm. a stew dish. But do you want the meat to be like a New Brunswick stew where it's all feathery and falling apart? Or do you want it to be more like a beef stew? Where you would have the visual recognizable like cubes, cubes of beef. Or a beef right. bourguignon or something like that where you actually like you still have chunks. Right. Both of these can be done through a braise. The issue, what the, the determining factor here is the amount of time that you cook it. Right. The, to have your beef cubes, you would cook it for a less, lower or less amount amount of time time. Mm -hmm. than you would do for like a Brunswick stew, which is all like completely falling apart and super feathery and everything. And they're both delicious, but it's just like, what do you want? They're different end products. Mm -hmm. So I think that brings up actually a really solid point that I want to discuss. And that's why we give a range of times when we write a recipe. Yeah, Because it's not a hard and fast rule. Everybody's stove or cooktop cooks at a different rate. Well, And even the protein, not every cow, so to speak, is fattened up for the same amount or the same way. So a leaner beef is going to cook differently than Than like a a super fatty beef. Exactly. You know, if you, for example, if you were making the stew, in theory, yeah, you could use, I mean, I don't know why you would, but you can use like a lean pork loin or right. something like that versus, you know, if you were doing like a pork shoulder. Right. Do you understand what I'm Which saying? Which has a lot more fat and connective tissue that kind of melts down and gives you that velvety exactly. end product. You can, if you're looking to make it healthier, yes, you can absolutely do it. But they're both to get the same, to to retain that chunkiness. You'd be going for a different time. You're going for a different amount of time. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, then how long do I, how do I know how long to cook it? And this is going to seem like a really annoying, ambiguous answer. At first, but we'll, we will qualify this. <laughs> but cook it until it's the doneness that you want it to be. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to expound <laughs> on that a little bit because we have a lot of people who will say things like, well, 
two to four hours. That's a really, that's a really huge range of time. It is, but we're not asking you to keep looking at it every 15 minutes. We're asking you to use all of your senses. Yes. So use your nose. Your your nose is huge. I always say that. My nose is not huge. (laughs) It's actually quite petite. Thank you very much. My nose is way bigger. (laughs) But what I mean is that your nose is the first sign or the first trigger to start checking. So if you smell a food, not if you smell it being burned, yeah, but if, if you, you even start to smell, smell it, the aroma of it, like it was like, oh, that smells good. Go check it. Or even if you smell it and you're like, wow, I smell that garlic. Yeah. Please go look at it. Um, you're going to use all of your senses in cooking. I'm sure you're familiar with what the five senses are. One of them is not the timer. Uh, this, yeah, that's a good point. I had never really thought about that. Right. You, you do not come naturally equipped with a timer. You do come naturally equipped with your eyes. You look at the food, your nose, smell the food, your mouth, you taste the food, you touch the food to, mm-hmm. you get all of these different, you listen to it as it's cooking. You know, it's going to make different sounds as it nears doneness. So, so a lot of recipes, I know we talked about how, you know, uh, Guru Escoffier, uh, Basically, he standardized recipes. Right. But you still have to use, like, you have to, it comes with time, it comes with experience. You yes, know, it does. You have to be, use your senses and be smart about where it's at. And so I always say your initial check is, is triggered by your nose. I agree. And then when you go and look at, then, so you smell it. So you go and look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Then you start, you open it and you can visually check it oh, it looks a little too pale. So if it's too pale, you know it's not done yet. Right. You know? So that's the other thing. Oh, it's starting to look pretty good, pretty golden. Uh, Let me double check it. You might give it a touch. Because especially with meats or you'll poke it with a fork, you can kind of determine by then, is it falling apart how I want it to? Is it still too firm? How much is it bouncing back? Exactly. All those sort of things. And then from there, you know, even invest. Oh my gosh, I can't even express this enough because a lot of home kitchens don't have this is a thermometer. Right. Which is also not one of your inborn senses, but it's an awfully handy extension of them. It is so important when, especially, and you know, you think about a thermometer just for meat. You can use a thermometer for everything to check the boiling point on water, to check whether your cupcakes are done, your bread is done. Okay, I actually took the temperature of every single loaf of bread that I made for my bread cookbook. It, uh, I believe like bread is like 190 or something that like that. Correct, that is right? correct. A finished, your average finished loaf of yeast bread will be around 190 degrees Fahrenheit. Not Celsius, thank you very much. <laughs> that would be a charcoal brick. Um, but... I want to I want to point out she says invest in a thermometer. It doesn't have to be a huge no, financial investment. No, no, I'm investment. talking about spend 2 bucks and buy a thermometer. A digital a, a digital thermometer. Right, a digital instant read thermometer at Target or Walmart is going to be under $5 and mm-hmm. it is easily one of the best things that you can do to up your cooking game and take some of the guesswork out of it. I mean, if you're really like a techie geek, you can totally get like some Bluetooth, Wi-Fi enabled notification. I 100% have one of those. I do too. And I have (laughs) mine has like four probes on it so I can put it in each piece of chicken and all this kind of stuff because the centerpiece of chicken is going to cook differently than the chicken that's outside and all that kind of thing. But you don't don't have to go there because we do this for you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why in the recipe development, we'll give you a range of times. Correct. With the assumption that you're going to still use your intuition and your senses to inform whether or not you need to go at the beginning of that range of time, the middle of that range of time, or the end of that range of time. And you also, you're familiar with your kitchen. You're familiar with your oven. Mm -hmm. So you'll kind of have a better idea as you use it, the more you use it, what amount of time something needs to be in the oven. Sure. So that leads us, though, into talking about, okay, so we're going to backtrack a little bit, because one of the most important parts of all of this, after we've considered all these other things, is that we need to think about how we want this dish to be eaten. Do we want to eat it by hand with a fork and a knife? Do we want it to be hot, cold, room temperature. I mean, I know you're a big fan of the handheld food. I love handheld food. It's like a party. And I do. I have, I think 
fan food, food, food. Fan held food. <laughs> Hand held food is a lot of fun to eat, but I also really enjoy like curling up with a bowl of something. When it is cold outside and you have a bowl of, let's stick with the stew yeah. example here, a bowl of hot stew and you're sitting there with a blanket over your lap. I mean, that is about the most comforting thing I can personally think of right now. <laughs> if if someone could invent handheld stew. I mean, isn't that just holding it in a mug or a bowl? I mean, I don't know what you mean by handheld stew. That is so, that, uh, that concept is a, is it's, a it's, fail. A, it's a non-starter. <laughs> that one will not launch. I understand that. I'm just saying in a perfect dream world, Handheld stew would be awesome. I I really have no idea how you would accomplish that, but that would be on a I'm sorry on a cold like winter fall day. Yeah, if you're doing something in the summer, maybe you want something cold and refreshing. You know what I mean. So then you have to think about you know do the ingredients even need to be cooked at all? Right. You know, are these ingredients that can just be raw, or maybe you're applying cooking through applying acid? Right. So chemically cooking, chemically cooking. So this is like, like another. Ceviche thing when you're kind of because you think a cooking method is only like braising roasting but also adding things to vinegar or putting things in a dressing will also or pickling sure is like you said a chemical cook absolutely and that's something that is awesome on a summer day absolutely because then you're not heating up the kitchen Although I do send my husband out with the grill very often. Like, well, sure. The grill is not heating up the kitchen. <laughs> it's heating up the outside, which is already pretty warm some days. So we've talked a lot about what method we use to develop our recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of need to go into how we know what goes together. So you're kind of, you think to yourself, everybody has the basic. I think a lot of people, I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of right. people have the basics. Right. So if you think Italian, you think tomato, basil, basil oregano, mozzarella, mozzarella yeah, garlic. Very onion. simple. Mm-hmm. And then if you're thinking Asian, you're like ginger, soy, soy sauce. sauce. There's So there are in American cuisine, you know, right. being the land of multiple, you know, cultural, cultural influences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of like basic profiles that you know. Right. But there's also a few tips and tricks to kind of venture out of that profile. Right. So if you haven't been a super adventurous cook Mm -hmm. previously, some of our tips might help you figure out how to play with your food a little bit more effectively. My mom told me not to play with my food. Um, My mom (laughs) did not. So on the most basic level, If you walk into a grocery store and you walk into a produce department, many bigger grocery store chains are now displaying items that taste good together. Yeah, because I think what they're trying to create now is a indoor garden, so to speak. Right. You know what I mean? So a lot of times, especially a higher end grocery store, like like Fresh Market's one of my favorite grocery stores. Or like my beloved Wegmans. And we are not sponsored by Wegmans, but oh, Wegmans, I would love to be sponsored by you. I'll just say that. Call me. (laughs) Call me. But now that they're really trying to use your senses and kind of like just the beauty of a garden to attract you, but you can also use that as a tool for creativity. Sure. So for instance, if I walk into Wegmans, I know that almost all of their tomatoes are going to be displayed next to the fresh basil. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll even have fresh mozzarella in a little refrigerated display case next Next to the basil and the tomato. And the garlic is not far away and the onions are nearby. I think they're making it as easy for us as possible. And even when, you know, even the categorizing of these vegetables, like if you go over to another section and you see the Brussels sprouts and they're pretty much, they're pretty close usually to maybe where the beets are and where the kale is and where the, um, heads of carrots or cabbage or cauliflower. All of these are really cruciferous, um, hearty vegetables. Right. Which will pair well together. Absolutely. And, and oftentimes be cooked similarly. Yes. So Not that's always, another thing that's but kind of that's helpful. Right. And then in the summer, you know, you see the corn and you'll see it maybe next to uh the zucchini. Right. Or the yellow squash. 
So again, those are things that go well together that you can make a salad with. And, you know, if you just want to make it simple, you can always put anything on a bed of greens. Or Exactly. And then you think about the zucchini, the yellow squash, the corn, all of them are great on a grill. So, you know, asparagus is another good one that's usually close by. So basically, the grocery store is putting into play this maxim of what grows together goes together. If you're trying to get more into the flavors that go well together, that's when I would say investing in the reference book, the flavor Bible is very handy. Yep. Because there you'll get, for example, corn in the produce section. It's not sitting next to, I'm trying to think like uh, chili powder. Right. You know what I mean? But in the flavor Bible, flavor Bible, you'll have a list of all the ingredients that go well with corn. So you'll have the chili powder, maybe some kind of sour cream, the fresh cheese, lime juice, lime juice, all of these things. And then all of a sudden, what dish do you have when you put those together? Corn salsa? I'm trying to think what what are we? Elote? Elote. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm like, she just described one of the most classic Mexican dishes. (laughs) And one of my most popular recipes on my blog. And I'm just like. What? what you, I'm, let me think about yeah, it. Yeah, we should maybe link to that <laughs> for your purposes. So if your grocery store is not arranged that way, you're not out of luck. You don't you don't have to buy the Flavor Bible at that point yet unless you'd like to. You can talk to farmers. If you oh, don't yeah. know a farmer, talk to someone running a produce stand or at a farmer's market and say, do these grow together? Do you have recommendations for combining, say, this eggplant with what what do I put with an eggplant? Because they'll have a pretty good idea what and also there's kind of this general I this general practice, so yes. to speak, of what grows together goes together. Right. So, you know, kind of asking asking those questions and talking with your local farmer at the farmer's market, you can get a lot of information out right. of that about and also they're always being told. Oh, so I, I used your eggplant and I made it this way. Right. And, and they'll share that information with you because they want you to continue buying their produce. Oh, absolutely. So they're, they're going to be a wealth of information. And similarly, you know, we talked about this. Oftentimes you can use the color wheel. It is. I kind of mentioned this. I thought this was like a funny little trick. You know yeah. what I mean? But if, um, if you look at the color wheel, the colors that run across from each other are considered complementary colors. Right. And they will also uh, work when it comes to cooking. You it's I mean? true. So if you think about it, you know, t- the red is across from the green. Right. So you got tomatoes and basil. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and then ones that are like close together, like you see orange, yellow, and a light and green are kind of close together. So then you've got citruses. So you've got the three citruses. And similarly, going back to that elote example, you've got yellow and green next to each other. So you've got corn and cilantro. Exactly. So it, you know, it's not the most foolproof tool, but it does assist in giving you some inspiration. You know what I mean? Think about the berries too, you know, right. how they're close in color on the color wheel. And reds and blues. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. They're close together on the color wheel and they go great together. And that, you know, you're thinking about just berries, but even like the fig is a bluish pink magenta fruit, you know what I mean? So it falls within that same grouping. Right. So we've talked a lot about produce, but this goes beyond the produce department too. Um, If you think about the principle of adding variety into your dish, you're thinking about maybe heavy versus light. Yes. So you're going to pair a rich food with something that's more acidic to cut through that rich... Because you don't want everything to be... You don't want a dish that is like fatty, 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 fatty. Right. Just like we don't want mush, mush, mush. Or you don't want it to be all acid. Right. You know what I mean? You need these contrasts to balance the meal. Because otherwise, again, we'll end up, what I said before, into palate fatigue. Right. I've told Rebecca this a few times is that when I eat something that is too much of one particular thing, it's either too fatty, too much acid, too heavy, it's just too one note somewhere, pretty quickly my palate becomes fatigued and I just cannot eat it. And I've actually seen her face when that happens and she's not kidding. It's like it's, it's like a, almost like a gag reflex. It's I'm a like, physical I'm, reaction. She stops. I, I've heard her say, I'm done. I cannot put another bite in my mouth. I'm, I'm done. Gonna, it's not going to end well if I do. Right. 
So those are really, and even temperature, like a contrast of hot and cold is actually one of my favorite things. You bet. So these are all that, like it sounds, it may sound overwhelming. It may sound like a whole lot of information. And if, and if you're doing this new or if you're just getting into it, I would encourage you, like, don't get overwhelmed with all of it. Take a little bit. Right. Just start, start one with the step basic. at a time. So start with that brainstorming the flavor combinations or start with visualizing, you know, what, how you want to be eating this at the table. Take one piece of what we gave you. And build off of that. Yeah. Just kind of slowly. Until it becomes habit. And look at other recipes. <laughs> so if you're overwhelmed by this, go back and just pick one of the things that we were talking about. For instance, start with brainstorming flavor combinations or visualizing how you want to be eating this at the table. And just kind of use that as a jumping off. Do that. Point. Build. Keep doing that until it becomes habit and build off of it. And it's a lot less overwhelming that way. For sure. Another thing is, is that look at other people's recipes. Yes, you know what absolutely. I mean? There is absolutely nothing wrong with looking at someone else's recipe and using that as inspiration and being like, well, you know, I know this ingredient isn't like this ingredient is in here, but I know it also goes well with this. So right. let me either swap something out or add something in, tweak it a little bit, maybe take something that is meant to be served as a full dish and turn it into a handheld food or appetizer is another thing that you can do. There's a lot of things if you can pull a lot of inspiration from other people and by reading those recipes, and I mean reading them, not scanning them, but actually reading them, you'll start to see trends and you'll start to pick up on things that pairings that are common, cooking methods that are appropriate. Right. So once it's it's basically giving yourself an education in food. So this is our day job. This is what we do. We love it. It sounds like a lot. This is why we have monkey brains. You know, this is all flying through our brains at the same time. Okay. I was like, we're not, we're not eating monkey brains. That's, that's not the next recipe. This is just how our brains work. And we hope that we've given you the confidence to at least play with your food a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. And please share with us any ideas that you or tips that maybe we've missed, um, things that you like to use in your own kitchen, any questions that you may have. Sure. You know, also, we we love a good failure in the kitchen story, too, because we've had them. Oh, yeah. And you learn so much from a fail in the kitchen. It's like, so never much. it's never pointless. It's never wasted. Like, it's always education. We've done this a million times. Um, before we leave, I'm going to give you my classic fail. Oh, I can. Let's let's each share a fail story real quick. OK. okay. So, yes, we learn so much from failure. Um, <laughs> my dad actually loves to tell this story. I've been interested in recipe creation since I was very little. And I believe I was about 12 years old. And my dad mentioned something about being hungry. So I figured I'd make him a snack. And I'm thinking in my head, well, what flavors go together? He wanted something sweet. And I thought, well, chocolate and orange are delicious together, right? Yes. So I made my dad a bowl of Cocoa Krispies with orange juice. Um. Okay. I mean, in in theory... It did not work in it, practice. It, <laughs> I stand by chocolate and orange being a fantastic combination, but I am here to tell you that the textural combination <laughs> of orange of juice, orange and, cocoa juice and Cocoa Krispies Cocoa does, Krispies. Yeah, it was Cocoa Krispies. I guess um, I think Cocoa Puffs would have held up better. I don't know. You want to try that? Because I'm not down with it. I have played that game and lost. So that that is my classic fail. And it's an early one. I've had a million since then, but that's probably the most memorable. The one that stands out to me the most was hosting my first Thanksgiving. Ooh, high stakes. Ages ago. I was in my 20s. I'm living in DC. All of our friends, all of our family is abroad. Like all of my friends there were also either Puerto Rican, Dominican or something like that. Mm -hmm. So everybody's there without family. So I'm like, come to my house where I will make you a traditional Puerto Rican Thanksgiving. Yay. So one of the things that are very common that is served during Thanksgiving in Puerto Rico is rice. Yes. You know, instead of mashed potatoes, we do rice. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to make rice. And I go to the grocery store and I see these peppers that look very similar to a pepper that's called an ají dulce. In Puerto Rico, there are these little tiny kind of sweet peppers. Hence dulce. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 
So I'm like, I grab the package, go home. I'm cooking. I'm doing good. I'm feeling really confident. I dice up my peppers. I toss them in. I saute, whatever. And all of a sudden, I notice that my hands and my face are burning. (laughs) And I'm like, and I keep touching my face. I'm like, man, why is my face like hot? Like, I don't understand why my face is hot. And I'm like, really, it's really starting to bug me. And then like, it really starts to burn. Did you touch your eyes? No, I didn't touch my eyes. And then I'm like, what is going on? And my roommate at the time goes and says, looks at the packaging and goes, you know, the bottom of this says hot Jamaican pepper. (laughs) Oh my word. You used a scotch bonnet. (laughs) I use multiple scotch bonnets in my rice. Okay. For the record, in case you're not familiar with it. (laughs) There's a there's a rating system for hot peppers. It's called the Scoville unit and rating they system. They are so hot. And scotch bonnets are right up near the Girl, upper third. It got to the of- point where like my face was red, it was on fire. I'm like in full panic. I run up the stairs and I douse my face in Pond's cold cream. That was probably pretty smart. To just like calm it down. And <laughs> And I'm like, I got to get this Thanksgiving done. I got to get this Thanksgiving done. So I'm like in the kitchen in my Thanksgiving outfit with my face covered in Palm's cold cream while my guests are starting to arrive. Okay, that's classic. And I thought to myself, I can say this, this rice isn't going to be too hot. And oh, I, no, you served it. And I told, I told everyone, I don't like, I cooked the peppers though. And I think when you cook peppers, cause again, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. When you cook peppers, it, it dumbs down the heat. So I think we should be okay. For the record, this was before Miss Sadie went to culinary school. This is so long ago. So that was my biggest fail. And needless to say, we did not have Thanksgiving rice that Thanksgiving. I was going to say, how many people took a bite before you realized? I think everybody took like, a bite or maybe like a few people took a bite and everybody was like uh, tapping out <laughs> no absolutely not that's a fantastic fail <laughs> so that one was my best fail so yes please you know what R- i would us. love to hear your stories on some kind of craptastic fail <laughs> <laughs> something memorable that everybody talks about to this day and you know what i learned what'd you learn i learned two things scotch bonnets are not ahi dulce, even though they look kind of similar. And don't touch your face when you're dicing hot peppers. <laughs> Could I add a third rule that you may have le- what y- you should have learned? Maybe wear gloves, gloves. while yes. dicing hot peppers. I also, you know what? The funny thing is that my hands weren't as bad as my face. Okay. You know what I mean? I mean, I did learn a lesson, though. <laughs> yes. Lesson learned. Thank you. All right. So that was fun. We shared our fails. We gave a few tips. And uh, I think we're good. I think so. If we have inspired anybody to take a chance in the kitchen that they wouldn't have taken before. I would feel that I have accomplished my goal. Absolutely. And we want to hear about it. Thanks for spending some time with us listening. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can download this podcast on all the major players, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you have any questions, fail stories, or have any recommendations for content that you want us to cover, shoot us an email at myplateisalwaysfull.com. And uh, make sure you check out our website for additional content, show notes, and all the links. Links will be in the show notes, though, so don't worry about it. And uh, we'll see you next week where we will be talking about instant ramen equals instant happiness. That's right, it does. Until then, stay hungry. Join us next week for another helping of My Plate is Always Full. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcasting platform, leave a review, and share it with your friends to spread the love. You can also find links to today's recipes on our website, myplateisalwaysfull.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions or episode requests, email us at myplateisalwaysfull at gmail.com. So that's our day job. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, he's like, you're done. You're done talking about your yeah. day job. Get over it. <laughs> somebody, somebody rub me. Well, this is, oh gosh, that's what I said. I can't even. <laughs> Okay. Where were we? <laughs>